In this episode of Influencers, AOL co-founder Steve Case. A hundred years ago, Silicon Valley was fruit orchards. It was farm country. It was agriculture. It was not growing startups. It was growing fruits and vegetables. 25 years ago, over 90% of venture capital globally was invested in the United States. That was less than 50%. So we have to kind of double down. And 10 years from now, we will recognize Silicon Valley is still the leader, but we'll have a much more diverse innovation economy, much more inclusive innovation economy. Hello everyone and welcome to Influencers, I'm Andy Serwer and welcome to our guest Steve Case, Chairman of the Case Foundation, Founder of AOL and Chairman and CEO of Revolution LLC. Good to see you Steve. Good to be with you Andy, All right, we go back a couple decades here. It is a couple decades now, <laughs> you're one of the OGs uh, in the tech sector uh, going back to AOL of course over 20 years ago. Um, I'm wondering what your thinking is about the big tech companies now and their role in our society. I mean, obviously a lot to chew on there. You know, they're kind of on the defensive in terms of being attacked by politicians, divisiveness. Um, does it surprise you how far these companies have grown and how important they are in our society and economy? Well, obviously the success of the biggest tech companies, Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, et cetera, is just it's more than I would have expected when we were getting started. It's, you were nice to say 20 years ago, actually started AOL 37 years ago 37. in 1985, which dates me, I know. When you, only, very when young when only that uh, point. 3% of people were online, and those 3% were online an average of one hour a week. And so mm -hmm. back then, we were trying to survive and figure out a way to kind of get people to believe in the idea of the internet, the fact that it's now become so ubiquitous even during the pandemic, the entire world basically was, was operating on, on the internet, uh, has been uh, uh, gratifying to, you know, to see. And the success of the big companies, as a, the, the degree of it surprised me, but obviously these are great companies and we always believed in, in the idea of the, of, of the internet because of their scale. I'm not surprised that there's more you know, scrutiny, even a little bit of a backlash to big tech, a backlash to Silicon Valley. Uh, that does not surprise me. And you know, are, are you, of the mind that these companies should be reined in by Washington, D.C. I think it's a mixed bag. I think it's, it, it is fair for regulators, whether it be in D.C. or Brussels or even uh, you know, Congress, to, to say what is the right role of public policy when some of these companies get so large and so influential and, and could potentially uh, slow the, you know, the innovation in some of those sectors because of their, you know, their dominance. I think it's fair to do. But at the same time, you have to be careful, I think, in terms of any on a policy intervention like that. So you know, having that discussion, which is now a pretty active discussion, uh, makes sense. You said that America itself was a startup. Um, how did entrepreneurs facilitate this country's growth? 250 years ago, America was a startup. It was a fledgling idea, and like many startups, the country almost didn't make it. You know, we take it for granted now, but those you know, first couple of decades were <laughs> a little rocky. Um, and we went from this startup idea, this startup nation, to the leader of the free world, uh, in part because we now have the leading economy in the world. Uh, and there are many factors that contributed to that, but part of what I was trying to tell the story of in this book is the role entrepreneurs play, the innovators play, uh, in creating the economy, initially kind of leading the way in the agricultural revolution, 
and then leading the way in the industrial revolution, more recently obviously leading the way with the technology revolution. That's part of the reason, a big part of the reason we went from this fledgling startup to the leader of the pack. And what we need to do is kind of double down on our entrepreneurs uh, and make sure that we continue to be the most innovative uh, economy. Uh, we're seeing much more global competition across all sectors, including the globalization of entrepreneurship. As you know, the data on venture capital proves this out that you know, 25 years ago, over 90% of venture capital globally was invested in the United States. Now it's less than 50%. So we have to kind of double down. And part of the, you know, the reason to write the book is it can't just be about a few entrepreneurs in a few places, Silicon Valley, New York, Boston, you know, those three areas are getting the overwhelming majority of venture capital in the country. We need to have a more diversified innovation economy. We need to back entrepreneurs everywhere. We need to create jobs everywhere. We need to drive economic growth everywhere. So some of this is about making sure America leads and continues to kind of win the, this next battle for the industries of the future, but also that we do it in a more inclusive way that does bring more people and more places in America along for the ride. And so how is that going? You're saying that, you know, that there is more venture outside of those three key hubs, particularly Silicon Valley, but how is the pandemic, how did that alter that trajectory? Well, it's been helpful, but first the, the, the data around venture capital and, and some of the trends in the last decade, I think are worth pointing out that uh, for the decade, 75% of venture capital went to three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts, which is shocking. 47 other states, including like serious states, Michigan, Illinois, Ohio, Virginia, Florida, Texas, collectively were fighting over the remaining you know, 25%. So that's been the story for most of the decade, which has led some people in those places to leave and figure they have to be in Silicon Valley, otherwise they really don't have access to the, the infrastructure to start and, and, and scale companies. So that's the, the, maybe the troubling news. The more positive news is we did a, a, a Rise of the Rest team, a joint report late last year with PitchBook, and one of the, you know, the data points was in the last decade, 1,400 new regional venture firms have started up. So there now is more capital in more states, there is more capital in more cities, and there also was a six-fold increase in the dollars going to these rise of the rest cities. So the problem was, is pretty severe. We're starting to, you know, to, to make progress. Our hope is over the next decade, we really do an see an acceleration. And to your question on the pandemic, what that did is, at least for some people, maybe a lot of people, led them to kind of rethink things, kind of how do I want to work? How do I want to live? Where do I want to work? Where do I want to live? How much do I want to be in office? How much do I want to be remote? Which has led to, after this brain drain, a lot of people leaving parts of the country to go to the coast. By the way, we should point out that AOL did not come from Silicon Valley or New York or Boston, came from the D.C. area, right? Correct. From Virginia. And other, uh, some of the early uh, internet and tech pioneers also came from around the country. Microsoft actually started in Albuquerque, right. then moved to Seattle. Dell was in, in Austin. CompuServe, the online service, was Columbus, Ohio. Hayes, the modem company, was in Atlanta, Georgia. So that first wave of the internet was more regionally dispersed. The second wave, when it became software apps on top of the internet, that's when Silicon Valley rose to dominance, really. I think in the third wave, when the internet meets the real world, there's more opportunity for other places to rise again, and that's what we're trying to fuel with the Rise of Rest, and we're trying to tell those stories to inspire people to start companies or back companies all across the country. That's why I wrote the book. So why did Silicon Valley become so ascendant? I mean, people talk about Stanford and the weather, but, you know, there's University of Texas and the weather there as well. I mean, so what is it about Silicon Valley? Because it still matters. Of course it matters, and it, it is the leader of the pack and will continue to be the leader of the pack, the most vibrant 
startup ecosystem really in the world. It, that mm -hmm. will continue. When we talk about the rise of the rest, we're not talking about the fall of Silicon Valley. We're talking mm -hmm. about the rise of dozens of other cities to create this more dispersed uh, innovation economy. The first point worth noting is 100 years ago, Silicon Valley was fruit orchards. Yep. It was farm country. It was agriculture. Yep. It was not growing startups. It was growing fruits and vegetables 100 years ago. 100 years ago, the most innovative city, sort of the Silicon Valley of its time, was Detroit. That's why I even start the book off with the story of Detroit. The car was the hot technology of the day. Everybody wanted to be part of a car revolution. People wanted to be in Detroit, so they moved to, you know, to, to, to Detroit. So these things can, can rise and fall, and there's sort of a, a, a cycle to them. The reason, to your question, you know, Silicon Valley rose up, a number of things kind of came together. Certainly great universities like, like Stanford, a, a sense of, of a possibility. A lot of people moved to California because it was sort of a pioneering you know, spirit, even the gold rush and that, that mentality helped inspire you know, people. But also that's kind of where venture capital really was based. It was a little bit started in New York, but the center of gravity really was in, in San Francisco. And then you created this increasing returns dynamic where there more and more of the money was there. And for the most of the past decade, 50% of the venture capital in this country has been invested in companies in California. And so it, it built up that, that great uh, kind of uh, you know, dynamic and, and uh, hats off to them. What we're just saying is let's spread the wealth a little bit. Let's back entrepreneurs everywhere. Uh, and, and that's what Rise of Rest is all about. But isn't it the case that um, there's been more venture in some of these cities, the result of simply more money going into venture? So in other words, you know, it's a much more popular source of funding for companies than it was 20 years ago. Yeah, no, venture capital has become much more of a mainstream kind of asset, particularly for institutional investors, a bigger allocation to private right. equity, including uh, venture, venture capital. For, for that, sure, that's part of it. Uh, and there were some attempts 25, 30 years ago to create more regional venture capital. A lot of them didn't work. It just the timing wasn't quite mm -hmm. right. One of the interesting, one of the people that was a pioneer in that uh, was Gina Raimondo, who was mm -hmm. part of a firm called Village Ventures, trying to essentially oh, yeah. do the rise of the rest. She, after doing that, went on to be governor of Rhode Island, is now secretary of commerce for the, for the, for the country, leading a lot of the efforts around regional hubs and semiconductors and, and, and so forth. What's changed this time is, it goes back to we're talking about how the kind of internet meeting the real world. Some of the industries most ripe for disruption, like, like healthcare, you're going to need partnerships. It's not actually just about the technology you build. It's about the partnerships you form around that. And some of the key partners are spread all around the country. In, in health, for example, in Ohio, you've got the Cleveland Clinic. In, in Minnesota, you've got Mayo Clinic. In Texas, you've got MD Anderson. In Maryland, you've got Johns Hopkins. And some of the big companies you want to partner with are HCA in, in Tennessee or, or um, you know, United Health uh, again, in, in Minnesota. Those are going to be anchor partners to drive a revolution in, in, in health. So you build the technology, then you build the partnerships around the technology. I think that will advantage a lot of these rising cities because they kind of have home court advantage in understanding these industries and, and being close to potential partnerships with anchor, or anchor partners. Before we get into those cities, Steve, I want to ask you to sort of map out um, your companies and your endeavors for us a little bit. So you've got revolution, then rise of the rest, then you got a bus tour, you got a book, yeah, tell we have me, a lot tell, going on. Put, it does, it, it, it does get a little confusing. So Revolution started as an investment you know, firm in, I think it was 2005. 
Uh, initially, it was more of a family office, and then I decided a little over a decade ago to have outside capital, institutional capital, as LPs in our in our funds. Uh, and our the, kind of the, the core part of the, the, the firm, the, in some ways the flagship, is Revolution Growth, where we make later stage investments in companies like DraftKings and Sweetgreen and you know, Temper Pack and Clear and you know, a lot of other other companies. We also have Revolution Ventures. And then more recently, we launched this Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, which is investing specifically in these cities outside of the major hubs, outside of Silicon Valley, New York, you know, Boston. Um, and for that, we were able to assemble an amazing group of investors joining us on that journey, yeah. including some of the most prominent entrepreneurs like you know, Jeff Bezos and Howard Schultz and Tory Burch and Sarah Blakely and some of the great venture capitalists like John Doerr and Jim Breyer, some of the great... You know, private equity investors like Henry Kravis and David Rubenstein, hedge fund folks like you know Ray Dalio. It's an amazing group of people that all believe in this thesis of mm-hmm. Rise to Rest and our investors, LPs in that in that fund. And that fund now has made 200 investments in 100 cities, uh, and in partnership with over 300 regional venture firms. So that part of the you know our business is, is really scaled up. But the idea is revolution more broadly whether it be that seed stage or that venture stage or that growth stage, we're trying to be able to back and help uh, you know, companies at every stage of sort of the entrepreneurial journey. Do you disclose assets under management or capital deployed? It's as about $2 billion of, of outside capital. Okay, and that, that includes investments from those partners, some of the partners yep. you just mentioned, yep. right? Um, wow, that's that's interesting. And so this is not philanthropic, right? This is not a P&L thing. Not at all. No, and mm-hmm. Even when we launched Rise of the Rest, some mm-hmm. people said, well, isn't it nice that Steve's mm-hmm. traveling around the country in a bus and right. trying to support the entrepreneurs there and support the communities there? And we are trying to support the entrepreneurs there and the communities there. But we thought the best way to support them was to demonstrate to some of those investors on the coast where most of the money is, that there are great investment opportunities all over the country. And the way to do that was to create a fund and then generate top-tier returns. And that would lead other people to, to follow. And of, of these early seed investments, we already have seven companies that are you know, unicorns, a couple that have already gone uh, public, and people are starting to say, huh, maybe this is a, a, an interesting strategy. And as we discussed before, the pandemic kind of accelerated that. There were some coastal venture capitalists that suddenly said, huh, if I'm going to do pitch meetings by Zoom, doesn't necessarily have to be a company in my neighborhood. It could be a company somewhere in the middle of the country, which led to more of those opportunities for the uh, entrepreneurs in those cities to tap into some of the capital on the coast. Tell us about the bus tour. I mean, what inspired you to get out onto a bus, you know, like John Cougar Mellencamp or something, you're going around the country. <laughs> What's that all about? How many places did you go to? How often are you out? Tell well, us about it started, that started uh, The journey for me on this started a little over a decade ago. I was asked mm-hmm. to uh, uh, chair an initiative by President Obama called Startup America Partnership. That got me mm-hmm. to travel around the country focused on, you know, some of these dynamics we're talking about. Uh, and then we said, well, let's, let's hit the road and, and see more, more places. That's when we launched our first Rise of Rest bus tour about eight years ago. Went to cities like Detroit and Pittsburgh that have you know, kind of, mm-hmm. you know, key kind of you know, parts of the American you know, story in terms of innovation. And we kept going. So now we've done eight of these tours. I think it's 43 different you know, cities. We, of course, had to park the bus when the pandemic started. So mm-hmm. you know, we have to hit, you know, we're looking forward to hitting the road again uh, with the bus next year. Our team is still traveling to a lot of different cities and meeting with a lot of different entrepreneurs, a lot of different uh, investors. But the bus specifically was visit a city, learn about what's happening before we get there, 
try to connect people within the community so there is more collaboration happening with the university and the big companies as well as the you know, startups. Do things like pitch competitions to identify promising companies and then, then make investments. So uh, we made uh, you know, several dozen of those investments through those Rise of the Rest bus tour pitch competitions. But in addition to that, we've now made over 150 other investments just because of the network that we've built up uh, all across the country. Do you think you're the only VC with a bus, Steve? Well, I hope others will you know, join <laughs> us on this. A bus, RV, whatever, you know, whatever it takes. But yeah, you know, I, I think it's 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 it, it shifted from uh, as we talked about earlier from a something where people thought it was a little on the fringe mm -hmm. to now recognizing some really significant companies are being built in different parts of the country. And it makes sense to be broadening your aperture beyond where you happen to be, whether it be San Francisco or New York or Boston, and, and look for the opportunities in other places. One example in, in, uh, in Chicago, uh, we backed this company, Tempest, Eric Lefkowski, a serial entrepreneur, uh, was minding his business, running some other companies. His wife was diagnosed with breast cancer about seven years ago. Uh, they talked to a bunch of different people. What do we do about this? And everybody they talked to had a different idea. You know, mm -hmm. you should do this or you should do that. Uh, and that made him really angry because it was essentially his wife's life was hanging in the balance and mm -hmm. all these different, you know, therapies were being suggested. And he thought that was a data problem. So built this company, uh, you know, Tempest, that basically to make it easier for physicians to understand exactly what's going on with cancer or other, other things and what the very best therapy would be. And they now have you know, more than 1,000 employees have raised over a billion dollars of, of venture capital because he had this insight that there was an opportunity to do something differently. Or in Richmond, Virginia, we backed a company called TemperPak. Uh, that the, the founders basically concluded that styrofoam, while it's helpful in keeping things cold, is really terrible for the environment. And so they created a more sustainable packaging solution uh, that now a number of uh, food companies like HelloFresh use, a lot of pharma companies use to keep drugs uh, you know, cold. Uh, and recently they announced a $140 million round with Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that you know, company's in Richmond, Virginia. So there are more and more of these stories, and obviously that's what, the whole reason I, I wrote the book. There are dozens of stories about entrepreneurs building breakthrough companies in dozens of cities, uh, but most people have no idea. Most people still think all the actions in places like Silicon Valley. What are some of the most surprising cities, perhaps, or just stories? And you just mentioned a couple, one in Richmond and one in Chicago, but are there places that are even maybe more surprising that they're smaller or more off the beaten path or just sort of eye-catching? Well, I, I, for me, because now we've done, this, as I said, 44 you know, bus tour visits and 100 you know, investments in different cities, and I spent most of the last decade you know, traveling around. They're all a little bit surprising. You know, I, mm -hmm. When I'm going there, I don't fully know what, what, I'm, uh, I, what we'll see. Uh, I'll give you some examples of things that you know, were, were surprising to me. Uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, the mayor a decade ago invested in high-speed broadband and it had the highest-speed broadband connections in the country mm -hmm. in Chattanooga. Number one. Number two, uh, Chattanooga, and again, I didn't know this until I visited, but it's sort of like the Silicon Valley of trucking. Some of the biggest mm -hmm. trucking companies in, in the country are based in, in, in Chattanooga. So this, this company won our pitch competition there called Freightways. Basically, it's doing like a Bloomberg data platform for the trucking and logistics industry. If you're building a platform for the trucking industry, the best place to do that is not Manhattan or San Francisco. It's Chattanooga, because they of the, the connection to that industry. Another another city that's really got a lot of momentum in the last five years is Indianapolis. 
partly because of the success of one company, Exact Target, it was acquired by Salesforce probably five or six years ago, a $2.5 billion acquisition. Salesforce at the time had 1,000 employees in Indianapolis uh, and now has 2,000 employees. So it's the second largest Salesforce city outside of San Francisco itself. And the founders, Scott Dorsey, and a number of the other early Exact Target employees have launched other companies and launched an accelerator and a venture fund. And suddenly there's, there's a dozens of companies really you know, growing in the Indianapolis area. Most people don't really understand what's happening in, in a place like, uh, like Indianapolis. So this is really the story of, and again, when people, you know, it's hard to pick just one or two or three examples because we've invested in so many places. There are 30 different cities profiled in the book in terms of what's happening and the dynamics in each of those cities. Uh, and it really is remarkable what, what, what's bubbling out there. And I really do believe over the next uh, decade it will accelerate. And, and 10 years from now, we will recognize Silicon Valley is still the leader, but we'll have a much more diverse innovation economy, much more inclusive innovation economy, which I think will be good for those communities and frankly, good for the country. Steve, I want to change gears a little bit and ask you about you. Mm -hmm. uh, a number of years ago, I went and actually interviewed your mom. I we were remember just talking about that because she was the mother of two CEOs, yourself and your late brother, Dan, who was the CEO of Hamburg and Quist. And so I'm just wondering about your upbringing. What was it in your family life that propelled you forward, do you think? I do remember that story for fortune. I was looking at it this morning, I was coming in, it was 1999, which, which, which dates both of us. Sally, <laughs> both my mother and my father passed away in the last few years, but they made it to the 90-ish zone, so mm. they, they had a wonderful life. I don't know, because uh, they, as you remember, were more conservative. My mom was a teacher, my dad was a lawyer, not particularly you know, entrepreneurial, but there was something about starting things and in, 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 in little businesses and so forth that, that, uh, that intrigued me. So I think I did take some you know, lessons in terms of hard work, nothing, you know, nothing important ever done, you know, it never gets done easily, and if you commit to something, you really have to you know, deliver. I think something around you know, trying to collaborate with other people, bring other people along, Something around humility, trying to do that in maybe a, a, a somewhat, you know, kind of a quieter, respectful kind of way. Those were some of the things that I learned from uh, from them, and some of the things that I think I learned from growing up in in in, uh, in Hawaii that have, you know, played an important role. And I do mention in, in the book that story of growing up in Hawaii. I think helps inform, along with building AOL in in, in Northern Virginia several decades ago, my passion for the rise of the rest. That. Hawaii was the 50th state. Uh, when I was growing up, television uh, uh, shows would air a week later in Hawaii because that was before the satellite was available. So they'd actually put these tapes on planes and we'd see the sitcoms and other things a week later. So it all felt a little bit like, you know, kind of off the beaten track. And when I was uh, building uh, AOL in the, in the Northern Virginia area, there was really no venture capital back then in the, in the 1980s. It was harder to get money, harder to attract talent and so forth. So I, I feel for the entrepreneurs in these rise of the rest cities. And part of the reason I think I'm so passionate about trying to level the playing field, make it more inclusive is some of my own personal experiences, whether it be growing up or, or starting a company uh, in, in, in those early days. And what do you see going forward, Steve? You and your wife have your foundation that you work on, but this has really become rise of the rest, this notion of um, aiding and abetting entrepreneurism throughout the country has become your personal passion. You yeah. see doing this for years to come? Yeah, I, I, I'll do it until it's no longer necessary. Yeah, you know, I, think, uh, I think it's important for, as I said before, we should not take for granted that 
uh, America, even though we are the leader of the pack now in terms of innovation entrepreneurship. Others have figured out that that's sort of a secret sauce. It's sort of powered the American story and are trying to steal that away. So we need to be, make sure we're competitive. And we need to do it in a more inclusive way. I think some of the issues we see even in our politics really reflect an opportunity gap where some people in some places are doing really well. And a lot of people in a lot of places are struggling and feeling kind of left out and left behind. And some of that is ties back into this issue of, of how do new companies start and new jobs get created. If we're backing companies only in places like Silicon Valley that are disrupting existing industries, many of which are located in different parts of the country, and as a result, there are job loss in those, in those communities, and we don't offset that, at least in part, by backing new companies, startups in those communities to create new jobs in those communities, I think this divide we have is even going to grow greater. So it, it's really at the core about entrepreneurs and helping you know, revitalize these cities, renew them, give them more of a sense of a hope and possibility. But there's a broader uh, agenda here around trying to, in a, at least in a small way, try to knit together a very you know, di divided country. I think it's important, so I'll, I'll keep, I'm working as hard now as I was when I was running AOL 20 plus years ago, uh, and I'll keep fighting this, you know, this, this battle and trying to, with the book and other things, uh, inspire others to join us on this, on this, on this, you know, on this battle. Sounds a lot like a lot more work ahead for you, exactly. Steve. And uh, let us know when you get the bus rolling out again, maybe we can jump on with you. I'd love to have you. Steve Case. CEO of Revolution, an author of the new book, Rise of the Rest. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Andy. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.